This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello! Welcome back to another edition of our Archaeocastronomical podcast, The Delicious Legacy. I'm Thomas Dinas, and this is the episode about figs and foie gras. Well, well, that might sound a bit um, strange combination, you'd think, but uh, bear with me. All will be revealed very soon. Fig is a tree fruit and native to the Near East. Figs were being collected by humans from wild by about 8000 BCE, across a swathe of territory from south of France to Iran. At some later date, selection and planting of the female trees must have begun. By classical times, and much earlier in Mesopotamia, there was a range of varieties available and the fig had become one of the standard constituents of the human diet, an especially convenient one. And that's very important because figs dry really well, and the dried fruit is a rich uh, source for, of dietary sugar. In the ancient agrarian um, cults, all around the ancient Mediterranean area, uh, the fig tree was regarded as a sacred tree. It was universally associated with fertility rites and with rites of passage and initiation, just like with honey. Now, the story, the story of the fig tree, the story of the fertilization of uh, the fig is very interesting as well. And it's one of these things that, um, I mean, not only I find fascinating uh, in terms of uh, general knowledge, but also how uh, early humans... Uh, um, noticed patterns and noticed and adapted and um, use all this knowledge and information to their advantage. 
so fig is one of these things that if you ask a vegan, it will tell you they don't eat figs. And that's always amazes uh, some people. Uh, that's because the fig needs a wasp to be fertilized with. And that wasp is inside the actual fruit that we eat. So that means that the fig, that the fig fruit is not um, a vegetarian thing to eat. So basically, fertilization of ancient uh, varieties of cultivated figs require the presence nearby of uh, male wild fig trees. The process uh, of fertilization is accurately described by the, fad- by the father of history, um, Herodotus, and in the following outline by Aristotle. The fruit of the wild fig contains the fig wasp. This creature is a grub at first, but in due time the husk peels off and the fig wasp leaves the husk behind it and flies away and enters into the fruit of the domesticated fig tree through its orifice and causes the fruit not to drop off. With a view to this phenomenon, country folk are in the habit of tying wild figs onto fig trees and of planting wild fig trees near domesticated ones. Now, because of this last practice, wild figs are found almost everywhere that cultivated figs are grown, and the original range of the species is now hard to trace. Figs may, depending on the variety and the climate, appear two or three times per year, but not all will ripen. The main crop is born in early autumn. The fig tree provided two seasonal landmarks for farmers. The date when the trees come into leaf and the date when the first fig ripens. So not only the domesticated and cultivated varieties of fig trees uh, require the presence of uh, the wild male fig tree, but also the figs themselves require the presence of the wasp to fertilize them. Now, apart from the fruit, the tree is useful for its bitter, milky sap, which may be used in place of rennet in cheese making. Wild fig trees and their fruit occur regularly in Greek myth. Two of the most famous seers of the ancient Greek myths, Mopsus and Kalhas, which Kalhas is the famous uh, seer from the Iliad, uh, in one story those two seers competed to answer how many figs there were on a certain tree at the town of Colophon. Mopsus had the answer right. Also very interesting is that according to some sources, in a linguistic double at hand, which is a, a figure of speech uh, with uh, usually a naughty or sexually suggestive second meaning. Uh, Greek sikon, which means fig, often, st- often stands uh, for vagina. So as a bad joke, uh, there was the iskas, or dried fig, which is, the gi- is given also the double meaning of anus in uh, Greek literature, in ancient Greek literature. And a further bad joke makes Iskas the name of a courtesan. So that's, uh, that's all uh, references from uh, ancient Greek uh, literature. For example, we find in, uh, in Menander and in, Ath- in Athenos as well. Figs are such an important fruit in the Eastern Mediterranean that the languages of the region have special vocabularies for fig cultivation and for distinguishing the fruit by color 
quality, and place of origin. Among terms often encountered in ancient Greek are sike, the cultivated fig tree, erinion, the wild fig, olonthos, the male fig in which fig wasps breed, and erinios, wild fig tree. The fig wasp is psen in ancient Greek. The following varieties of fig are relatively prominent in classical texts. Greek laconica were grown around Athens and were among the most profitable varieties in classical Greece. Greek chelidonia, Latin chelidonia, are among the most frequently named. This variety flourished in the 4th century BC Athens as in the 1st century AD Rome. The Latin Africa Africana Greek Africana was a variety grown near Rome, presumably originating from North Africa. Latin Chalcidica, Greek Chalcidica, were likewise grown near Rome and perhaps came originally from Chalcis in Euboea. Latin Pompiana were named after the certain Pompeius who introduced them. This was an early variety and no doubt for that reason the best for sun drying. The fresh fig fruit, Ficus carica, the scientific name, is in ancient Greek sikun and in Latin ficus. In Greek, in ancient Greek, iskas and in Latin carica is what we call the dried fig. This one is much more concentrated in flavor than the fresh figs. And these were available to add sweetness to the diet uh, throughout the year. Um, in ancient Greek, they were eaten among uh, tragemata or desserts. So, in Latin, as we said, the dried fig was called carica. And um, that comes from uh, the Caria region in the southwestern Asia Minor. So, Caria was known to Greek, to ancient Greeks and Romans as a source of dried figs. It was a very famous place for the trade of figs and dried figs. So, the figs are so firmly associated with this region that in Latin, dried figs are simply called Caricaim. If we see a map, we see the, this region of Caria in the southwestern Asia Minor. It's very near the neighboring island of uh, Rhodes. And uh, so Rhodes also, whether as a second source of figs or as a, as a point of connection between the western Mediterranean, it was also a very, very pop- popular place for, for figs and dried figs and, had, and it had links with the Carian fig trade. Part of the whole ancient um, Greek religion rituals that were interconnected in a complex web with uh, nature and the earlier agrarian cults was was a ceremony that used to happen where the junior priests uh, had the duty to reveal the fig. And they were known in ancient Greece as sycophantes, the word for for fig being sico, sike. So to reveal the fig meant announcing the official date of its ripening and the picking season. So, at this fortunate time of the year, one might eat fruits and honey, sweet and low-covered in delicacies. The ritual opening of the season is not so far from the opening of the hunting and fishing seasons we still observe, or the opening of the vintage and coffee seasons in wine-growing or coffee-growing regions and countries. In the time of Solon, who was a 6th century BCE Athenian lawmaker, 
um, the export of figs was banned. So people who denounced smugglers were derisively called sycophants. And thus the term came to denote all informers. And that's where um, our word sycophant comes from. For thousands of years, figs have played an important part in the diet and the economy of the Mediterranean countries. From the days of the hunters and gatherers to the exchange economies of today. In the years that there was no sugar, or very little, they were used for the preservation of cooked fruits. Preserves of figs are still made in Provence. A handful of fresh or dried figs made a very nourishing meal, perhaps with milk clotted with the sap of the fig tree, or with fig cakes of bread. Plato called figs food for athletes. The Greeks were well aware of the figs' value, and as we saw, as we saw above, forbade its export in order to protect Attica's main resource, more precious than gold. Moving on a bit and going to the Roman era, Lucius Junius Moderatus Columella, who was a prominent writer on agriculture in the Roman Empire and lived in the 1st century AD, gives us in uh, his uh, De Rustica important information about the farming practices and Roman agriculture, beliefs and practical advice. His 12 volumes have been completely preserved. They form an important source on Roman agriculture, together with the works of Cato the Elder and Varro, both of which he occasionally cites. So in his works, therefore, Columella gives a careful instruction for sun drying and storage of figs. They were typically trodden into cakes, so he observes that one should first wash uh, one's feet, with an addition of fennel and other aromatics. In Greek, there is a separate term, palathe, for caked dried figs. According to Columella, on the book about agriculture, Terre Rustica, as we said, one can make fig vinegar as well. There are some regions, and, and I quote from Book 7, There are some regions in which wine, and therefore vinegar, is lacking. So in the same season of the year, green figs in as ripe a state as possible must be picked, especially if the rains have already come on and the figs have fallen to the ground, owing to the sours. When they have been gathered, they are stored in jars or pitchers and allowed to ferment there. When they have become sour and have yielded up their moisture, whatever vinegar there is, is carefully strained and poured into sweet-smelling vessels treated with pitch. This liquid takes the place of very sharp vinegar of the first quality and is never affected by decay or mustiness as long as it's not kept in a damp place. Some people, who prefer quantity to quality, mix water with the figs and from time to time add very fresh figs and allow them to dissolve into the liquid until the flavor of sufficiently sharp vinegar results. After this, they let it percolate through small rush baskets or sacking made from broom and boil the clarified vinegar until they get rid of the scum and every kind of impurity. Then they add a little griddle salt which prevents the production of worms or other animals in it. And this is from, from uh, Columella's book. 
in another book of his, uh, he talks about using a fig sap to make cheese. And I quote again, cheese should be made of pure milk, which is as fresh as possible. For if it is left to stand or mixed with water, it quickly turns sour. It should usually be curdled with rennet, obtained from a lamb or a kid, though it can be coagulated with the flower of the white thistle or the seeds of the safflower, and equally well with the liquid which flows from a fig tree, if you make an incision in the bark while it's still green. The best cheese, however, is that which contains only a very small quantity of any drug. The least amount of rennet that a pail of milk requires weighs a silver denarius, and there's no doubt that cheese, which have been solidified by means of small shoots from a fig tree, has a very pleasant flavor. An early example of um, cheese making with fig sap, I think it comes from uh, the Odyssey, uh, on the chapter about uh, Polyphemus, when uh, when Odysseus is um, trapped in the cave by the cyclop. And um, yeah, he has a sheep for milk and cheese. And I think he talks about making, uh, it's a very early example of cheese making, fresh goat cheese and so on. And um, in terms of experiments, uh, modern experiments making uh, cheese with, with fig um, sap, I think you can find them online quite easily. There are people who experimented with this. And the results are interesting, to say the least. So continue with our um, fig. Thria, in ancient Greek, were the fig leaves. They had several culinary uses in the ancient world. They were, for example, used uh, for wrapping bonito in one of uh, Archestratus' recipes, my hero. Uh, so yeah, in one of his recipes for fish, uh, he wraps the bonito uh, in a fig leaf and he buries it under the hot ashes and he lets it um, cook there for a little while. So we have the bonito fillet or the fish, a bit of olive oil, uh, vinegar, sorry, a bit, a bit of olive oil, oregano, bit of salt, wrap it on the fig, on the fig leaf and bury it under the hot ashes until it's done. So in the ancient world, also the leaves themselves gave the name to a series of recipes for stuffed fig leaves. The development of this idea is uh, traced uh, in an article by Andrew Dalby, which has done extensive research on ancient food, on ancient Greek food. And uh, there are other other historians and um, other food historians that they've substitute or inter interpreted the recipes uh, in the, for the modern kitchen, uh, substituting um, vine leaves with fig leaves. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Delicious Legacy, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. At this point, I'd like to remind all the listeners that you can find the Delicious Legacy on Acast, iTunes, TuneIn, and Pocketcasts. Please subscribe to keep updated with new episodes as well as other surprises. I'd like to add that I've created a Patreon page where you can subscribe and help me run this podcast. Your support can give me the opportunity to add more quality content for you in the form of recipes, images, videos, and related articles. If you have enjoyed the episode so far, please consider heading to patreon.com forward slash The Delicious Legacy or Google it 
type Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and the name of the podcast, The Delicious Legacy, and you'll find how you can help me run this podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So this, uh, so this now brings us very interestingly to the second part of our, of our episode today about foie gras. And um, the question is, what is the connection between those two things? Why do I make one episode for, for, for it? And I will answer this uh, shortly. But first, let's, let's see a little bit about the history of foie gras. And uh, it's a much, much older technique than one would expect. We find it uh, in ancient Egypt. So at the end of the 5th dynasty, the official, uh, whose title was um, the pharaoh's one friend, chief of his master's secrets in all his dwellings, chief of the royal works, steward of the pyramids of Neferikare and Neotsire, or to call, his, uh, to call him with his uh, more shorter name, Tai, who lived and buried in Saqqara, was so fond of foie gras that he painted bust reliefs in his funerary apartments, which provide us with a graphic account of the cramming methods in use at the time. So we have actual evidence from uh, ancient Egypt about, of about 2500 BCE that um, they used to stuff uh, geese and other birds in order to eat... Um, the liver, in order to eat the fattened and fatty liver. In this series of scenes on the funeral chamber of Tai, which I must say that they, they, these, um, these scenes now are in Louvre Museum, 
So we have the poultry in a file and they passed, uh, they pass across the deceased and the, the deceased um, Thai and his son. And there's a flock of geese and ducks. So there's a flock of geese and ducks passing in front of the deceased uh, Thai. And then the next image shows the cramming of this duck and geese and even of uh, cranes, the big birds. So we have seated on the ground two servants or could be slaves as well, which are mixing a dough in a round bottomed pot, um, which is set on a tripod. One of the young men holds a funnel, whether for force feeding uh, the birds or for um, blowing up on the fire. And his companion is rolling the dough between his hands, making into little regular sausage shapes. And moving on to, the, to another picture, we see the sausage of dough neatly arranged in a cup so that they only have to be picked out one by one and put into the bird's greedy beak. The bird is being helped to swallow by pressure of the fingers around its neck, as if it were being massaged. Beside the crammers are vessels containing liquid, possibly oil, to make the food slip down better. A whole flock of geese and ducks, a little way off, seem to be awaiting this feast impatiently. Some already craning their necks, others are beating their wings, while others again, obviously satiated, are drinking. Several other depictions of this subject and representations of baskets full of fat geese, all dating from the 5th dynasty, show that the cramming of geese was a usual practice from the 3rd millennium BC onwards. But we don't know exactly how the Egyptians cooked and ate their foie gras. According to Athenaeus, writing on the 3rd century AD, fat geese were sent from Egypt as a present to Agesilaus, king of Sparta, around 400 BCE. Athenaeus also simply repeats in his Dipnophosophiste a remark said to have been made by the famous cook Archestratus. But now, Ulpian, you, who asks us questions about everything that appears on the table, you will not refuse to tell us what text of the ancients makes mention of these magnificent goose livers. A little later, he has uh, the fine phrase, a liver, or rather, the soul of a goose. The Greeks, still, according to Athenians, of course, were experts at fattening geese, with wheat pounded in water. One early reference linked to geese and foie gras comes from Homer's Odyssey. I have 20 geese at home, eating wheat soaked in water. Penelope, in, in this Odyssey passage, uh, where she begins to tell her dream. What better image for the rapacious suitors than a naturally fattened geese? The practice of uh, fattening geese became also common in, uh, among the Romans, who were anxious to serve anything magnificent, enormous, of generous size, unique or monstrous, on their tables. Cato, in the 2nd century BC, explains how to cram hens or geese. Shut up young hens beginning to lay, make pellets of moist flour or barley meal, soak in water, and put into the mouth. Cram twice a day, and give water at noon, but do not place water before them for more than one hour. 
feed the goose the same way, except that you let it drink fast and give food and water twice a day. Columella, which we saw earlier about figs, in the first century, repeats Cato's advice verbatim and gives a description of the cramming of geese which would not be inaccurate in a French countryside today. Palladius, in the 4th century, says that geese should be fed on a vegetarian diet until they're fat enough in a dark, warm place. But if you want their livers to be tender, you must roll pounded dried figs soaked in water into little balls and give this to them at the end of 30 days of fattening and continue to do so for 20 consecutive days. Notice here the first reference on figs, feeding figs into goose. This is talking about dried figs soaked in water. Pliny gives no details about the cramming of geese, but he agrees that the Romans like the tender liver, foie gras we call it nowadays, the liver of the Gaulish geese that came on foot all the way to Rome from the Morini, which is in Picardy, modern region Picardy, France. But Morini was in ancient Gaul, right? So the geese that get tired are advanced to the front of the rank and so all the rest drive them, all the rest drive them on by instinctively pressing forward in the rear. After resting from the journey, no doubt these geese were crammed, and we may assume that their succulent flesh would be eaten too. Despite uh, Pliny's statement that um, our countrymen are wiser, who know the goose by the excellence of its liver, stuffing the bed with food makes the liver grow to a great size, and also, when it has been removed, it is made larger by being soaked in milk sweetened with honey. This enormous liver, as Juvenal called it, was even better if it came, uh, as uh, Horace specifies, from a white female goose. The idea of soaking in milk is not as odd as it may sound. Today, pork liver is steeped in milk, although without the honey so it loses its bitter flavor and becomes more tender. The dried and very sweet figs the Romans used for cramming geese would have made the geese even sicker than they already were. The foie gras is actually the liver of a severely diabetic bird. Greeks called this sicoton, and the Romans yekurficatum, both meaning force-fed goose liver. Indeed, fig liver was regarded as so superior to all other foie gras that the Gauls forgot to go on calling it Iecur, which is the liver bit of, of the sentence, Iecur ficatum, and retained only the descriptive ficatum. This became the 8th century word figido, and then fedi and feye in the 12th century, and end up as foie. So in modern French, therefore, all liver has a suggestion of foie gras about it much as the word caviar is optimistically applied to fish eggs other than those of the sturgeon. All, of course, in line with the Gaulish dream. Modern descendant words include uh, the modern Greek sicoti, the Spanish higado, the French foie, and the Romanian ficat. So this is the crucial connection between fig and liver. Ancient Greeks and Romans stuffed the geese with sweet dried figs or fresh figs in order to produce this delicacy called 
fig liver. And then the Gauls forgo the word liver and kept all the word fig, which gave us the modern word for liver. A very interesting connection there. In modern Greek as well, sikoti, the word sikoti, it has something about siko. When we say sikoti, we evoke the fruit fig. We evoke the fig fruit. A couple of ancient recipes here for your um, curious minds. Julius Pollux, the Greco-Egyptian rhetorician, evidently enjoyed the stuffed leaves cooked uh, in honey, but not vine leaves, the tender fig leaves. He gives the recipe in his second century lexicographical work, the Onomasticon. Make a stuffing of wheat flour, lard, eggs, and brains. Yes, brains, I said brains. Divide it into small pieces and wrap in leaves. The stuffed leaves are first cooked in chicken or kid broth, then drained and cooked a second time in boiling honey. There was also the recipe of uh, the fish bonito from Archestratus wrapped in fig leaf that we saw earlier on. And also ancient Romans used to eat dried figs soaked, cooked in water or wine. And that's a very interesting way to cook them now. So instead of using sweet wine, uh, we can use dried figs soaked in a mixture of uh, water and, uh, and port and, one, and cook them separately from our main course. But we can serve them with a main course of, uh, of, of game or pork. They make an excellent accompaniment for it. The two great foie gras regions are in uh, the southeastern France and in the Alsace. And they still share the production between them. They both make great foie gras that divides all the epicures <laughs> into two camps. Those who prefer the foie gras from Alsace and those who claim the supremacy of the foie gras from the southeast. In Alsace, foie gras is cooked with an assortment of some 15 spices. Alcohol is added in the southwest. Certain purists in both camps, however, prefer to leave the liver exactly as it is, adding only a little salt. The different methods of cooking produce uh, the Alsacian foie gras, highly flavored, slightly gray in color, and the southeastern foie gras, plainer with a sweet, nutty flavor, and pink as a baby's bottom. Finally, there has been a fashion in recent years for duck foie gras, which now accounts for 20% of sales. It is a little cheaper and is more rustic in character, with a slightly bitter aftertaste, varying accordingly to the locality. Originally, foie gras was a seasonal food eaten on festive occasions at the end of the agricultural year. Geese were hatched in spring and crammed in autumn. Today there is demand for foie gras all year round, and therefore production must meet uh, this demand. So going to modern-day France and modern-day foie gras, there are two great foie gras regions. In southeastern France, the Dordogne, Gers, Lot, Lands, and the Pyrenees Atlantique, and the Alsace. Now, of course, I understand um, um, the concerns uh, we have about uh, foie gras. How is um, this force feeding of geese is barbaric, inhumane, and we shouldn't be eating foie gras. And this is uh, nothing new, to be honest. I mean, we've been debating foie gras since ancient times. Um, that's another point. That's another point that I wish to make. That it's a very controversial practice. 
of our food industry today, but it wasn't something that was considered always normal in the ancient world as well. This process we call gavage, and is most associated with France, is uh, something that it's it's been banned in in a lot of places. Of course, the idea with the ancient Egyptians and more or less how it comes today is that um, when the waterfowl prepare for the long migrations, they will pile up calories. They will eat and eat and eat uh, before they start the the journey. So they can uh, store fat deposits in their livers and under the skin. So the Egyptians, for example, the ancient Egyptians, 2500 BCE, they tried to replicate this natural process by shoving the food down the throats of geese, ducks and cranes. And also, actually, birds weren't the only victims of ancient Egyptians on that respect. Um, they also stuffed um, even hyenas, other animals, even hyenas, for and cows. And we have depictions of cows too fat to walk and being transported on, um, on a cart. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the primary motivation for, for this, we think, we assume that we know it's not because of the fatty liver per se, but um, to use the animal fat for the production of animal fat because that was what uh, they used it in everything from uh, hair loss remedies uh, to the famous Egyptian eyeliner used animal fat. So we do have this spread across um, uh, Greece and ancient Rome, the spread of uh, gavage, of this technique. And, um, I mean, Romans also fed the pigs with food, crammed them down the throats. Um, and, <laughs> and not only in the same manner as geese, but also they used um, the tiny dormice they were tricked into pre-hibernation binges by being kept in total darkness and surrounded by nuts. As we've seen, it was a very popular delicacy for Agra, and there was a popularity of this gavage technique in the ancient world. But that doesn't mean that um, people didn't object to it. The first century writer Plutarch makes his position clear in a diatribe called on the eating of meat. So he says, for the sake of a little flesh, he laments, we deprive animals of sun, of light, of the duration of life to which they are entitled by birth and being. Begging for mercy, entreating, seeking justice, each one of them says, I do not ask to be spared in case of necessity, only spare me your arrogance. Kill me to eat, but not to please your palate. Plutarch, even though he was a Roman citizen, uh, he was Greek, and his position on animals has has uh, more precedence among the Greeks than the Romans. In the same text, Plutarch supports his argument with the example of early Greek philosophers who encouraged vegetarianism on moral grounds. For other ancient authors, um, while they didn't oppose specifically the practice of gavage, there were disapproving uh, sentiments towards uh, the eaters of foie gras. Because uh, for the ancient Greek and Romans, diet was seen as a reflection of character. Rich and expensive food became a symbol of decadence and corruption, 
and those weighted invited criticism. In a satire by the Roman poet Horace, guests at a banquet refused to try a white goose liver fattened with succulent figs because the pompous host won't shut up about his elaborate menu. In revenge, we took off, leaving him there without tasting a thing. The emperor Elagabalus, who was vilified as extravagant, and he was quite mad too, was said to, to feed his dogs nothing but foie gras. Well, where does that leave us now in modern times? So we do have an increased concern about the welfare of uh, the geese themselves. So a lot of modern farmers have developed ethical foie gras, which is produced by the birds that gorge on their own volition. And the debate continues. The debate was always there since ancient times about foie gras and force-feeding uh, animals, geese especially, except now that uh, we don't force-feed hyenas. <laughs> Special thanks to all my Patreon backers so far, and thanks to everybody else who's listening to the podcast out there. Please leave a review on Acast and on iTunes, and um, give us um, five stars if you like it. That really, really helps um, getting the word out there. And um, yeah, I hope you find this uh, figs and foie gras episode uh, interesting and you, you see the linguistic connection between those two items and how this continues through the centuries and th- the thousands of years that passed. Thank you for listening. I'm Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 